0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. It may come as news to some people that many wilderness areas have private roads and properties cutting into them. These are called inholdings, and they make wilderness areas less wild. There's a group that thankfully works solely on these issues, and that's why I'm talking to Amy Rutledge, Vice President and Senior Land Specialist for the Wilderness Land Trust. Once wilderness is designated, they remain many threats to the borders and interior of designated wilderness. That's where the Wilderness Land Trust comes in.
1: The Wilderness Land Trust has been around for almost 30 years, and we have always worked to acquire private lands that are either inside, next to, or directly benefit wilderness. And that can include designated wilderness. You know, The Wilderness Act of 1964 allows Congress to designate wilderness areas that are um, the highest level of protection in the U.S. for eco- ecology. Um, and that uh, basically means that there can't be any motorized access to those areas, that man can be a visitor but shall not remain I love that language from the act. Um, So recreation is allowed, but not motorized recreation. And hunting is allowed, but, you know, not motorized access for hunting. So there's lots of different uses that people are uh, actively enjoying in wilderness, including obviously things like backpacking, but also hunting and just scenic qualities and wildlife viewing. We work throughout the nation to try and make sure that these wilderness areas Stay ecologically secure and safe from non consistent private uses. And we try to complete some of them. Some of these wilderness areas are riddled with private lands because mm. long ago, you know, we thought mining and uh, other agricultural activities, homesteading, uh, was the most important thing to do on wild lands. And since then, um, we've reevaluated some of that. But those private lands that were granted out in the 1880s for purposes such as those are still private. And so they have the right, as they should, as private property owners, to be able to access their properties. And there's when we started about 30 years ago, there were about 400,000 acres of private land inside federally designated wilderness in the U.S. And Not just through our work, but also through our work and then the work of our partners, other conservation groups. If that amount is now down to about 180,000 acres, but that's still over 3,000 private landowners who are making individual private management decisions about wilderness. <laughs> so wow. we we try to work with people and, and uh, do deals that work for them from a business standpoint. We try to move quickly, which the federal government really can't do very well, Um you know, they have a long process for acquisition of land. We are private and nonprofit and bring our own funding from individuals, donors, lenders, foundations, and others that want to help protect wilderness. And we put that those resources to bear to be able to do fair market value deals with willing landowners and help them protect their land. We will then purchase it and hold it and clean up either the title or the physical property so that it becomes wilderness quality, both legally with all the mineral and water rights attached or physically, if there are problems on the property like old mining uh, pits or impacts or a cabin or other things, we physically can clean up the sites and get them ready for the federal government to acquire them and add them to the wilderness. So it's really gratifying work to do the first deal with the landowner that really wants to preserve their land and get a fair deal, which is absolutely what should happen. And then, you know, we turn around and and get it ready and then permanently protect it by doing the second deal to transfer it to the U.S. So
0: it's really gratifying work. I would imagine so. I I think it's really awesome that we've gotten that number down. I had no idea that it was 400,000, you said 400,000 acres of- Yeah, and that's
1: just in the the continental U.S. If you added Alaska, it would be a lot more.
0: Yeah but it does still seem like a big number nonetheless. It is
1: a big number. And and what what impresses me more is just the number of private landowners that are still, you know, making individual private decisions about what happens inside wilderness. And that's, you know, that's a hard, it's a hard balance for both the private landowners sometimes and the agencies that are managing the areas. Um, And so it's nice to be able to come to a really good, joint, happy solution in these cases.
0: As you know, uh, everybody's talking about 30 by 30 now and what we're going to be doing over this uh, next decade, you know, in every group and every land trust, everybody has a different role to play, of course, in this. And a lot of our roles aren't changing at all. It's just neat to say that we're all in the same, you know, we don't often get to be in the same boat, you know, in terms of wilderness um, and protection, a lot of people are left wondering and ask all the time what constitutes protection and of course our answer and I'm sure your answer as well is well the we start with the absolute best protection in the country and that's wilderness we consider that first and national parks and and it goes from there what are your feelings about that program and and I know that you probably put wilderness at the heart of this is what we need as much as possible in that 30 percent?
1: Absolutely. So for the last almost 30 years, you know, we've protected 50, almost 53,000 acres of land that is now wilderness that was private, that's added 493 parcels to wilderness. And we've also completed 17 wilderness areas and helped several others become uh, designated. And so that's really practical on the ground work. Um, So we're very familiar with uh, the qualities of wilderness, how hard it is to get a piece of land into the shape that you know will be a part of the wilderness system where man shall be a visitor and shall not remain. Since our name is the Wilderness Land Trust, we really only work. Our mission is very, very focused on the highest level of protection and making sure that we are doing deals that directly benefit wilderness values. So we will do a very small deal, We joke that we did quote a credit card deal on a a very small five acre piece of land in Arizona that was an important trail access point. Uh, And we've also done very large deals, multiple thousands of acres. For example, in New Mexico, we uh, added over 4,000 acres by donation actually with the help of a foundation. Uh, that opened the Sabinosa wilderness up to public access, whereas before it had been landlocked. So, you know, we do all sizes and shapes of deals, but the key factor is that they have to meet that highest level of protection. So we do indeed as an organization and from our mission feel that that is some of the most meaningful conservation work that can be done. Uh, But I will also say that sometimes we do deals, as we do in uh, the Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks area, Both of our deals have interacted with the Oregon Mountains Wilderness so far, but we also work in national conservation areas and national monument areas because sometimes those can be incredibly important linkages and can include potentially future proposed wilderness areas. We also sometimes work in inventoried roadless areas, which is a a designation that the forests will use, the U.S. Forest Service, to You know, designate the ecological qualities of an area, and the fact that motorized access is, um, you know, not appropriate there. So, it's short of a wilderness designation, but you know, all those types of designations can really be helpful to draw together landscape level protection, and wilderness areas can be a really important part of that. Another example that we're working on right now, where they link together, is the Klamath Siskiyou Wild Area in southern Oregon and northern California, is. In the millions of acres overall, it has about six wilderness areas that are a part of it. And we have done several deals um, all throughout that wild area that goes all the way from the Pacific to the Sierra in California. And from again, the Klamath River and uh, Kalmyopsis area up in um, Oregon, down all the way to uh, below Mount Shasta in California and even further south. it's it's very gratifying work down to the Eel River watershed. So we're we're working all throughout there north to south, east to west and different wilderness areas. And you know, our work is important for both the individual wilderness area we're working in, which could be you know anything over 5,000 acres up to but it links together all this landscape.
0: Do you get to go uh do site visits and things? I mean, I'm I'm imagining people listening to this going, wow, she must have an awesome, awesome job. Wouldn't like, do you get to do ground truthing or be part of on the ground stuff?
1: I do both a lot of office work and also a lot of uh, field work and I enjoy them both. Um, I love our relationship building and working with our partners. And there's nothing better than boots on the ground um, to build partnerships and also an appreciation of the land and the resources. Just uh, last Wednesday, I uh, hiked in a snow flurry uh, with a representative in Las Cruces from uh, in the Ochomoc Canyon from uh, Senator Heinrich's office, U.S. Senator Heinrich's office, and then the Friends of the Oregon Mountain Desert Peaks and some other folks locally. And you know that that kind of experience really reminds you why you're doing the work, and 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 obviously is very important. It was one of our final inspections to look at some of the features of the property and make sure we're you know moving forward in a way that makes it easy to have it be wilderness quality when we're transferring it to the agency
0: you're listening to the rewilding earth podcast did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars poets artists and organizers from around the world you can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant fresh insights on everything rewilding You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I remember Dave Foreman very early uh, teaching me the importance of knowing what you're trying to protect and knowing, and of course you guys, that just comes with your mission. You have to know literally what's on the ground for uh, the purpose of exactly what you do, but Uh, Others who are just conservationists that are not, you know, land trusts and working out boundaries and all of that um, government stuff that has to be done to to return something to the government and have them uh, consider and designate it wilderness. He just made it very important. (laughs) You have to be out here. You have to. He even got mad at me one time when I felt guilty about not being back in the office because I was very busy with proposal writing and things. He says, you're at work now. We were going down a river, a nine day river trip. (laughs)
1: It's true, right? Not only do you, right, right. There's, there's like this connection with the land that um, when you're building partnerships or when you're just building your own inspiration or ideas and creativity for the work uh, that you need to be outside uh, in those environments to understand. And um, you know, we do both things because our board has to evaluate each property carefully. We, we have inventories in each state that we work in to give us a start for where all the private lands and designated wilderness are. We mail periodically to those folks. But the other ways we find deals and we're really careful at our lands committee level um, to review them to make sure they are directly benefiting wilderness values is we interact with local groups like the Friends of Oregon Mountains, Desert Peaks or the Vantana Wilderness Alliance and um, California, or I mean, I could name many Friends of Nevada Wilderness. I mean, I could, the list goes on um, all over the country. They, they also help be our eyes and ears um, as well as uh, Forest Service, BLM, National Park Service staff uh, that are out there, district rangers managing those those lands every day, and and we get advice from them about deals that are really important to do, and landowner management issues, and just relationship building, as well as making sure we picked up the trash.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <there's laughs> or whatever a lot of that other to items do, like a large helicoptering out a large cabin, or <laughs> 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 and that list could also go.
0: You're dealing with an access issue now in the Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks area. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, so we are excited. There's a lot of uh, land that's right along the edge of the Oregon Mountains Wilderness near Las Cruces that uh, has been zoned residential by the local jurisdiction. And instead of seeing five-acre lots be developed in these areas, uh, some of which uh, go into the wilderness and some of which are right next to the wilderness, you know, we've been targeting these to be able to add protection for wildlife, prevent any future residential development, and also pick spots that BLM has prioritized for future public access points. There's only a couple of access points um, to the Oregon Mountains wilderness right now that are really popular, and they're getting overrun, frankly, uh, which is great that people care about it and are engaged in the wilderness so much, but they want in the future to be able to spread out that access. And so we're, we're getting a triple win, right? Preventing residential development from approaching further, protecting, you know, hundreds of acres of additional wildlife habitat and key locations, and also um, securing public access points for uh, popular trail areas and from Highway 70 on the north end of the wilderness, uh, a place where there's not access now. So we're we're very excited to be sort of, you know, getting that triple benefit out of these students.
0: Yeah, it's checking off a lot more boxes than your average uh, situation probably does to the satisfaction thing from earlier. Um, Yeah, and and I think we really coordinate
1: closely with the agencies to make sure we're doing high-priority acquisitions that make sense for the public, Um, you know, because, I mean, we want to make sure our work has the highest possible and, you know,
0: broadest possible impacts. And this has to do with the Aachenbach... Canyon trail access specifically? It does. So, the
1: current project that um, we're raising funds for and working with supporters on right now is um, 109 acres that is zoned for residential development, but is currently vacant and is for sale and is used by uh, many members of the public currently to be able to access the 5.5 mile Aachenbach Canyon Trail. It's a gorgeous trail. I was just out there the other day. We hiked up to a, a peak and you could see. From a high spot in the canyon all the way out to the rest of the monument, which is hundreds of thousands of acres. And the light coming in and the snowstorm approaching and then all of a sudden snowflakes starting to fall on us, which convinced us that we should head back. <laughs> mm. um, you know, it was a pretty unique experience in the desert. The plants there are fed by seasonal streams coming down the canyon. And um, it's, it's just an important area for not only wildlife, but scenery and, and enjoyment of them the area. And we saw several people hiking the trail when we were out there. And um, this, this property has flat area that will allow people to be able to continue to access the trail from the trailhead area. And mm-hmm. it could be incorporated into BLM's management plan in the future. And then, you know, formally developed by them as an as access
0: point. The access issue and, and the traffic being very high in any place that's even moderately interesting. Let alone the places like this that you're talking about that are really well known and very well traveled and and people really really interested in them, we can love our places to death <laughs> sometimes or 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 put a, at least tax them very very greatly, but it it brings up that there's a back to the 3030 thing before the 3030 thing there were uh, there have been calls for more national parks that there are a lot of places that um and wilderness there are a lot more places left that are not really designated that are de facto or you know really great candidates for wilderness recovery areas for like buffers and connections um, between core areas And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, that you see how much these places are loved. And you also see that, you know, if there were other places that were designated that were protected, um, it might take some pressure off some of the areas that you have interests in, that you're working in, and spread people out a little bit more. And that's a countrywide thing. But here in the Midwest, there's no access except for people who live close to the Smokies to significant national parks. Um, which contain wilderness areas sometimes, sometimes are bordered, surrounded by, in others. Uh, we just don't have that kind of access. So the Smokies are beat. I mean, they are there and they're managed, you know, as well as can be expected for 12 million visitors a year. But could you talk a little bit about that, The the the, the interest that's there? Because a lot of people just immediately talk about oil and gas and access and private landowners and everything, but... It makes people maybe think, well, what are all these areas for? Like, why do people even use them? Can you tell them what it's like out there when you're watching people love a place so much and you want them to, but it would be really great if there was just some more places out there and there are great candidates for more places, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, as I said, that's one of our main goals on the Aachenbach Canyon project and the other property to the north that we acquired is to spread out access appropriately in the mm-hmm. Oregon Mountains Wilderness area. But I, I have a couple of other really good examples, and it's interesting you talked about the Smokies because I was back east for about three months in the fall, and I did some hiking. Not in the Smoky Mountains. I wish I had been able to do that. We drove through there on the way back, but um, in the on the Appalachian Trail, <laughs> which is another. Mm-hmm you know what I mean? Well, yeah. well loved uh, uh place that goes through a lot of different kinds of parks and historic sites. And um, I have to admit that I stopped at a pub one day, so it wasn't a full wilderness experience, but that was, you know, still pretty nice <laughs> and it yeah. was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so that was an interesting mix, but I want to talk about um, a project that we're doing in Northern California that really speaks to this. We, uh, there is the last largest remaining in holding in a uh, wilderness called the Castle Crags Wilderness that includes a lake, and you can drive right up to this lake on a on a paved road year round. So it's plowed in the winter, even though it does get snow there. And there is a well well loved <laughs> trail uh, that goes to a lake called Heart Lake that goes through this property and through the wilderness to get to the to the lake. And it's braided and. When you get above the tree line into the Alpine area, it's highly impacted because people haven't found the trail. It's never, because it's been on private land for this section, it's never been signed as a national forest trail. And Mm -hmm. people have just found their way we saw this as being a problem when we did a community hike day to help raise support and awareness of this acquisition project. It's it's a 637 acre property total that we're gonna, hopefully we've acquired now out of public auction a year and a half ago and we're working hard to transfer to the Forest Service. But before we transfer it, we, we created a partnership and, and brainstormed actually on that community hike day with the Mount Shasta Trail Association and the Siskiyou Land Trust. And they then worked hard over the year that we they knew we were going to be in ownership of the property uh, to get access to a trail crew. And so at the end of the season, they called us in November, right before Thanksgiving, and said, we have a trail crew. They can come out in the next two weeks. We've gotten a plan approved with the Forest Service staff to re- restore this trail, put it on one route, and we want to get them out there and get all the work done. So we hustled and we worked hard together to get a, a license agreement done. Um, to authorize them to head out there. And within a week, uh, right after Thanksgiving, they, they popped out there and they worked on that trail. And now that trail is a steady, secure, single trail route. And they will be doing more work in the spring before we transfer it. And the forest is planning to then sign it and designate it as part of the national trail system when they acquire it. So That is very gratifying because that Alpine environment there is extremely sensitive and literally was being loved to death and now will be able to recover. That's the kind of project that we feel, you know, is really meaningful. And and it was very efficiently done with two nonprofits uh, with the close coordination and approval of the Forest Service. And that makes it a lot more efficient for everybody, the taxpayers and everybody to get that work done.
0: How does the Wilderness Land Trust, is it magic that you raise the money for these places or where does the <laughs> money come from? Um, I imagine you figured some way to just conjure it out of thin air um, because it sounds very expensive to, to, I mean, if I'm, if I'm a landowner and I have an inholding, I'm probably going to want fair market value and that is just the most, you know, what what does that even mean because <laughs> every one of these things is so individual and unique, I would imagine. Um how do you guys get support and how can people listening uh support you? Uh
1: it is very hard work to reach out to people and thanks for your help in letting us do that today um about the work that we do and the resources we need and the partnerships we need to be able to make it happen. We our board and staff work tirelessly to make connections like we're doing today, um, to let people know about our resources that we need. And just to give an example, I mean, some properties can cost in the millions of dollars. Other, other properties are you know, a few thousand dollars and it's all everywhere in between. We do appraisals on every property we buy so that we are very careful to follow federal appraisal rules. And we know that the sales comparisons in the area are supporting the fair market value. We talk closely with landowners about that because obviously sometimes people's listing prices, even on their own home, might be higher mm-hmm. yep. than sales comparisons around them right at the beginning. So sometimes <laughs> it takes close partnership and coordination and with landowners. And, and honestly, we've worked with some landowners for over 20 years before we finally reach a deal, but we stay congenial. We don't do advocacy. and We only focus on real estate work because we want to be able to have these very good partnerships with all these different folks, including you know all the private landowners we work with. And we raise money on our website, of course. Uh, sometimes foundations will give us loans, but we also have individuals and, and lenders both donate and loan money to our wilderness opportunity fund. And this provides support for our land acquisitions so that we're ready to move when property owners are ready to sell. We don't have to wait for money. We have it. And um we also need money for. Transaction expenses, like I said, we need to do two deals every time. You know, we got to buy it from the landowner and then we hold it and get it ready and clean it up and then we sell it to the forest and that takes money. For example, it took $30,000 a year, actually more than that, to, to hold timber insurance on the property along Castle Lake. And the reason for that is the appraisal depended on the timber value. That was the highest and best use. So if it burned, we would be in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, sometimes we have foundations that give us large grants and allow us very generously to donate land to the federal government and add it immediately to wilderness. There is a section of the Wilderness Act that allows us to do that if land touches wilderness, but that's rare that that an organization would be willing and able to put money into something and allow us to sink the money in, so to speak. Lots of times we're rotating the money in and out of projects, you know, we buy a property, we resell it and we rotate the money back into the wilderness opportunity fund. So if people donate to our, to our cause, their money is getting used over and over again to protect lands. And we have some private lenders and uh, that have supported five up to five acquisitions, you know, over a several year period uh, with the same money. So it's really a satisfying results-based thing uh, to work with our partners and um, yeah, you know, uh, every, everything everything costs money, as you say, but we think this is a, a higher level of return for the investment.
0: That is very cool. The idea that uh, my donation can actually just be cycled through and through, because I can tell you that most organizations that you donate to, it, it goes and then they're, you know, Hey, we need some more (laughs) because it's you know another year. Um, And and you know, we
1: like to kind of balance you know people's money that goes into actual land acquisition and then and then helps us with our transaction costs too. Like a really tangible thing, besides removing a cabin or a trash dump, is a title issue like outstanding third party mineral rights that could be exercised in the future. Well, we want to get ownership of those and so sometimes we need to do you know like a court action that takes time research funds to pay an attorney and then pay the court recording fees to be able to regain those mineral rights or to negotiate with the private company and and get them back either donated or buying mm-hmm. them. so you know it's all these kinds of things that create uh, the need.
0: are there opportunities ever for people to come and help with ground truthing or um, yeah. restoration efforts or anything on the properties that you're working with?
1: Yeah, we're actually, we had that big community hike day up in the uh, Mount Shasta area on the Little Castle Lake probably before COVID, that was August, 2019. And um, we're planning on doing something at Achenbach Canyon in Las Cruces when we can. Um, We have had volunteer trail cleanup days um, or property cleanup days where we've partnered with organizations. So if there are organizations that are interested in doing that with us, it would be great to know. Uh, We also have a GoFundMe site Uh, up on the um, Achenbach Canyon property. So, But going to our website is by far the best way uh, to to find out how to support us. And that's just wildernesslandtrust.org.
0: What are you hopeful for? What are you excited about coming up?
1: We're hoping that there will be even more properties for us to be able to purchase to stitch wilderness together. And we hope that people will get in touch with us about proposed wilderness areas um, that perhaps could benefit from our work so that the boundaries make more sense and that the ecology of those areas can be whole uh when they are designated as proposed areas so 180,000 acres is still hanging out there <laughs> and we're yeah. we're working on that so that's that's one of our long-term goals but our our other long-term goals is as more of those acres get added because more wilderness gets added as part of 3030 or these other areas national conservation areas national monuments that directly benefit wildland values that we get in there and help make those the best designations we can by advance work with private property owners um, and uh, linking all these landscapes together. So our goal is to be the go-to organization if people around the country have property issues that are related to proposed wilderness areas or areas that could be proposed in the future or designated wilderness, give us a call. We want to help.
0: And go to wildernesslandtrust.org. And Amy, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you and your organization for all the wonderful, wonderful work that you do. It's so vital. Thank you so much. We really appreciate rewilding and all that you do as well. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.